What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome back once again to the PC Speaking Podcast. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really appreciate each and every one of you guys. Uh, If you haven't done so, I certainly encourage you to like the podcast, follow it, whatever you do on the platform you might be listening on. Also, you can follow on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Uh, Christopher B. Miller on Facebook, Instagram, PC Speaking, and I believe TikTok is PC Speaking as well. Certainly appreciate your support. Uh, This week, we continue on through our study and the whole armor of God in the book of Ephesians. Next week will be our last week. And then we're going to back up a little bit and talk about relationships. Uh, Just uh, back up a little bit in the book of Ephesians. Well, before I was discharged from the Marines, one of my final jobs I had was serving as a corporal of the guard. I'd work a 48-hour shift There was one other corporal of the guard who I would work with, a peer of mine, and we were directly under a sergeant of the guard. And we were tasked with the security of uh, the camp on which we were stationed. And we had several guard posts around the camp where junior Marines would stand at guard duty. And it was the job of myself and my peer to make sure everything functioned smoothly make sure that our guards were awake and doing their job on post. Now, if you've ever been in the military, I don't think there's anyone who much likes pulling guard duty. It's very dull. It's tiring. It's uncomfortable. It's boring. It's very monotonous. But it is an important job. Interesting thing about a job that is uh, both monotonous and tedious, as well as important, It is a very difficult job to do because a job that's boring and tedious, but also important, requires a tremendous amount of discipline to do it well. It's difficult to remain vigilant when you are tired and bored. In Marine Corps culture, or at least it was this way when I was in many years ago now, but it didn't really matter if you made a mistake, uh, whether it was an honest mistake, an incompetent mistake, or a lazy lack of discipline mistake, they were all treated pretty much in a similar fashion. Um, Just because, you know, you just can't make mistakes in some of the things you do. It's very important that everybody be on point with what they're supposed to be doing. And one night we had a a discipline problem with one of our guards who was uh, on duty. We went out to check post about 2,300 hours, 11 o'clock at night. And we quietly came up to one of our posts to check on one of the young Marines standing guard at duty. And we found him. He was sitting on a table. He had taken his helmet off. He had set his rifle aside. He had his canteen out, sitting there acting like he was having a picnic or something. And we quietly crept up to the fence and we stood there watching him for a minute or two. I don't really know how long it was, but we were a very short distance away. And then one of us said something. And 
this uh, fellow who was on guard, he wasn't nearly as startled as he should have been. He was uh, even a little bit belligerent with us. And so we helped him out with a bit of uh, constructive criticism, you could call it. We went back to the guardhouse and the same guy kept messing up on the radio protocol. I don't know, half messing around, just half messing up. And the fellow I was working with, my peers suggested that more time on post might help this Marine to learn to properly stand his post, help him learn to discipline himself to correctly stand his post. So when the time came to change the guard, uh, we didn't bother to change him out. We left him out there all night long. And I can't remember that we had any more problems with him after that. But one of the very most important things in a military unit is discipline. There's just no room for mistakes often when doing uh, some of the jobs that military folks do because the consequences of those mistakes uh, can be so deadly and for you know your comrades, but also sometimes for even larger communities of people. Um, it can be very dangerous, the mistakes that you might make. If someone's supposed to be on guard, but they are sitting down with their gear off, not paying attention, they're going to be in real danger if trouble comes and if something happens. Now, it's a different situation, but no less important that we discipline ourselves to wear the whole armor of God. If we are going to live in obedience to Jesus, we have to understand what that means. And we learn what that means from the Bible. That's where we learn the commands of Jesus. We discipline ourselves to read and study. We discipline ourselves in prayer. The more we do that, the easier it becomes. There's a lot to be said for the power of habit, but we have to discipline ourselves first to form those habits. And of course, as Christians, we have the help of the Holy Spirit, but God doesn't do that for us. We must discipline ourselves. I was listening to a lady give a talk this past week, and I think it was a TED talk. I'm not 100% sure. I don't even remember. It was kind of a, one of those snippet real things you catch on social media. But she made what I thought was an interesting point. She said, the energy it takes to discipline yourself to accomplish whatever you want to accomplish during the day is the same amount of energy it takes to immediately throw off the covers and get out of bed when the alarm goes off. And I thought, that's a pretty good analogy. It's doable, but it takes discipline. If you have the discipline to do that, you probably have the discipline you need to get through the rest of your day, get done the things you need to do, and get done the things you want to do. It's not that hard. You know you're capable of it, but you have to actually discipline yourself to do it. Think about this week. Maybe uh, try it and see how you go. It might be something helpful for you. We pretty much covered the armor of God and... Today, we move on to something that is not a piece of armor, but definitely, nonetheless, a very essential part of the gear, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's read our passage. Um, like I say, if you've been tuning in, we've been reading this each week. We're going to read it one more time next week. But Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 says, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. But on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your waist girded with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the fiery arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit always with all kinds of prayer and supplication to that end, be alert with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Here's something to consider about armor. Since we've been talking about armor for a while now, armor does its job pretty much in and of itself. And you don't really have to learn how to make armor work. You have to put it on. And once you get it on, it does its job. Now, today we come to the second half of verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the sword of the spirit is not armor. It's something different. As we'll see, it's still a very defensive weapon. As a saved believer, you remember, we talked about this week, You this past week, you hold the tactical advantage of having your identity settled in Christ. In spiritual warfare, you stand firm in defending that position. Attack or retreat, is unnecessary because you already hold the high ground. You're well protected by the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, as Paul says. And the sword of the spirit is a weapon used to defend that position. Whereas armor is for the most part equally effective, regardless of who's using it. You know, it doesn't really matter who puts armor on. Once you get it on, it's going to work the same pretty much for everybody, but that's not really the case with a sword. You give a sword to a new recruit, uh, they can use a sword, they can swing it around, they can flail with it, they can hack, and they can chop at things. But when you put that same sword in the hands of a battle-hardened veteran, it becomes something different altogether. The effectiveness of a sword is determined by the one wielding it. That skill is determined by experience, time, work, and discipline. Someone who is a master with a sword can teach others how to use it very effectively. Now, as we think about that, who might we look to to help us learn how to use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, Jesus himself, of course. And we have a perfect example of Jesus defending the high ground against the enemy with the sword of the spirit in Luke chapter four. If you're familiar, you would already know. If you're not, Jesus is led uh, into the wilderness by the spirit. And there he is fasting for 40 days. And then he is tempted by Satan. Now, some things to consider about what's happening here. We're going to read these verses as we work our way uh, through our time together today, but some things to consider about what's happening here. 
as we seek to learn how to wield the sword of the Spirit. In this passage, Jesus was in a weak place. He was fasting. He was physically weak. And there's a comparison and a contrast to be made here as well. When Adam and Eve were tempted, they were in paradise with everything they could possibly need. And Jesus, when he was tempted, he was in the wilderness amongst wild animals and without food. It took Satan one attempt to lead Adam and Eve to disobey God. Satan makes three attempts to tempt Jesus and he fails each time. Well, let's take a look at how Jesus wields the sword of the spirit because he did it well and Adam and Eve did not. And the first one we read is in Luke chapter four, verse three. And this is what it says. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. There are a few interesting things, again, to make note of, to be aware of as we talk about this passage. We often think in spiritual terms when we read the Bible, which makes sense when it comes to biblical things, we think spiritual things, but we are three-part beings, tripartite beings. We are comprised, we consist of a body, a mind, and a spirit. And when Satan attacks Jesus, he does so at a time of physical weakness. And there's definitely some food for thought in that for you and me about how the enemy works. Satan will look for a time of weakness to attack us with temptation. When we are tired, when we are hungry, when we are physically weak, maybe we're angry, maybe we're hurt, whatever it might be, we are more likely to fall into temptation. Taking, your, taking care of yourself physically can help you better be able to resist and flee from temptation. Now, in our verse, Satan shoots a, a fiery arrow of temptation at Jesus. It's a very pointed attack. It's during a time of physical weakness. And as we think about this, where Satan tempts Jesus to turn these stones into bread, and we think about that attack, would it have been sinful for Jesus to turn stones into bread? It would satisfy his hunger, and it was well within his power to do so. But it's not about stones, it's not about hunger, and it's not about bread. That's just a, you know, a physical weak point that Satan attempts to take advantage of to tempt Jesus. What does Satan say when he speaks to Jesus? He says, if, if you are the son of God. He begins with if, that's what he opens with. And remember, the deadliest blow that Satan can deliver is doubt. And he's trying to plant a seed of doubt, just like he did with Adam and Eve. And what is Satan trying to get Jesus to doubt? He says, if you are the son of God. Now, to understand that, if we back up to the previous chapter, uh, Luke chapter three, verses 21 and 22, this is what they say. They said, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. God said, you 
are my beloved son. Satan says, if you are God's son. Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to doubt what God has said. And he's trying to leverage his physical weakness to do that. Jesus limited himself to the form of man, to the form of a man. So, and, and I want to be careful with this, but it's it's not unreasonable to think that he felt like you or I would about our identity. He felt the same things we felt. He went through the same things we went through. He just, uh, you know, he didn't sin. Your identity in Christ isn't always apparent in your feelings. It's not something you always feel. Um, we don't always feel like we are a child of God. And sometimes we have to just trust what God has said about that. Satan attacks at times of weakness with temptation uh, to, tout, to, to get us to doubt God. And our feelings, we can't rely on those to help us get through that. You know, our feelings are fickle. We can't rely on our own strengths. They come and go, they change. There are times when we must use the sword of the spirit to parry the attack of doubt regarding our identity. And here's a verse that might help. John chapter one, verses 12 and 13 says, yet to all who received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. To those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus parries Satan's attack to tempt him to doubt who he is with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Um, and this is what he says when he does so. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So Satan's first attack, he he's, is quickly parried. It falls flat. Then he comes back immediately with this. It says, the devil taking him up into, onto a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this power and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Satan's making some pretty big claims in this verse. He, uh, one is that he claims possession of the world and authority over it. And you notice Jesus doesn't deny that. God is permitting Satan to make a claim of possession and authority. The Bible refers to Satan as the ruler of this world in multiple places. And Satan says, you can have this world, Jesus, but you must worship me. What's he doing? What's Satan trying to do? He is tempting Jesus to accept this world as his kingdom. But to do this, he must recognize Satan as his authority. Now, Jesus told Pilate before his crucifixion that his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus rejects being an earthly ruler more than once. The Jewish people at the time, believed that the Messiah would be someone who would be an earthly ruler. He would be kingly. He would cast off oppression. He would lead their nation to greatness. And at the time of Jesus, that oppression would have been the Roman Empire. I know progressive Christianity often makes the same mistake in thinking that uh, Jesus is some kind of political savior. Now, many people, including Christians, 
think that if we could only rule the world, we could fix the world's problems. We, we sometimes adopt an ideology that says that, but if the world is broken and, and it's full of lost people, we're not going to be able to fix it. Jesus came not to rule the world, but to seek and save that which is lost. Being the ruler of this world is a concern of Satan, not followers of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in the same manner we are, and he knows exactly what it's like to be us. And again, as Jesus tempts Satan, or Satan tempts Jesus, sorry, I don't want to get that mixed up, do they? And I think that if there's no desire in the temptation, it's not really temptation. When Jesus took on the form of a man, he dealt with the same kind of feelings that you and I do. And of course, I want to be careful. But Satan tempts Jesus and he says, he tempts him with this. He says, you could make things just how you want them to be. If you rule this world, you could cast off the oppressors. You could feed all the hungry people. You could make everyone live by your commands. You can fix everything. You can make it exactly how you want. And since he limited himself to the form of man, he would have felt something there. You know, but Satan, Satan says, all you need to do is worship me if you want all this stuff. What is Satan tempting Jesus to do? Satan is tempting Jesus to give up the purpose God has for him and to serve something else, to be self-serving. Even though in the case of Jesus, he would do good things, but God has a purpose for sending his son. Satan is tempting Jesus to align himself with a different purpose than the one God has for him. He's tempting Jesus to align himself with what Paul would call another gospel. And to do so would be to place a desire to rule the world above the will of God. Satan tells Jesus, you can make it whatever you want it to be, but you will have to fall down and worship me first. Satan tempts Jesus to abandon God's will for his own, the true gospel for another gospel. Satan tempts people to believe that if you can rule the world, you can save the world. If you can rule the world, you can fix it. If you can rule it, you can save it. That may be through a political gospel. If we could just get the right people in office, we could fix the world. It may be through a social justice gospel. Oh, if we could just cast off the oppressions, we could fix the world. It may be a woke gospel. It may be a prosperity gospel. If we could just make ourselves wealthy enough, we can save the world. But when we align ourselves with another gospel or an ideology like that, when that happens, people put their faith in the ideology instead of the gospel of Jesus to save the world. And many Christians fall headlong into that temptation. I see it a lot with politics. So is following a different gospel worshiping Satan? Well, I think it depends, but either way, a different gospel is certainly from Satan. And Jesus parries with the sword of the Spirit. This is what he says. 
Jesus answered him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan offers Jesus the opportunity to fix the world's problem, so to speak. You can have this, you do whatever you want with it, make it whatever you want. He says, you can rule the world, but to do so, you're gonna have to abandon God's plan to fix the real problem, which is sin. God has a purpose for Jesus. He has a purpose for us, and that is to serve him and his purpose, not to rule the world so we can fix the world, but to take the gospel to the world so the Lord can save lost souls. Each of us must choose who we're gonna serve. We have to make that decision. We're often tempted to serve someone or something, possibly an ideology, besides God, but we use the sword of the spirit to fend off that attack. So once again, Jesus parries an attack with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He defeats Satan. Satan tries one more time, and this is what he said. He brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you to preserve you. And in their hands, they shall hold you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Did you notice how Satan now attempts to quote scripture to tempt Jesus? He says to Jesus, if you really are who God says you are and you actually believe what God says, you should put that to the test just to make sure. You should get God to prove his trustworthiness so you are sure you can trust him. If he's trustworthy, get him to prove it. If you're gonna believe what God says, you should first make sure he's trustworthy. That's what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do. You need to see him manifest his power first. And Jesus answers him in verse 12, and he says, it is said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And that word tempt is like test. In his previous two answers, Jesus says, it is written. And Satan being cunning as he is, answers. Also, it is written. Satan in his pride says, hey, I can play this game too. Whether it's an attack of doubting identity, doubting God's will, or doubting God's trustworthiness, all of these attacks are parried with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you have the discipline to throw off the covers right when the alarm goes off and get out of bed, you have the discipline to learn how to use the sword of the spirit to fend off the same kind of attacks. Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not test him. Now to better understand what that means, we can compare that with something we discussed last week when we were talking about Romans chapter 12. We talked about proving God's good and acceptable will. It's not like proving it to be accurate through speaking about it or convincing someone through a verbal argument. That's not what we're talking about in this case by proving it, but it means to proof test it where we put what God says under load by making it the load bearing structure upon which we build our life. We prove what God says is true by building our life on it, by acting on it. And in doing so, our life proves that what God says is true. The kind of test 
Jesus is talking about when he says to Satan, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God is like saying to God, I will believe what you say after you do something to prove yourself to me, which is really saying, I don't trust God. You know, I, I, it's, it's like saying, I can't believe what you say or trust you until I see you manifest your power in some way first. Satan's trying to get Jesus to doubt the trustworthiness of God. And how often do we hear this? If you've ever, you know, read online, you try to share your faith with people, things like that. How often do we hear, I would believe God if he would manifest his power in some way that I would find sufficient. I hear people say things like that quite often, actually. If God would perform a particular miracle, I would believe him. And to that, I say, no, you wouldn't. Uh, That's just reality. People saw Jesus perform many miracles and still didn't believe he was the Messiah. There's a significant difference between I'm going to act on what you say because I trust you versus God, you need to prove yourself trustworthy and then I will act in a way that says I trust you. The latter doesn't believe that God is trustworthy. Now to do this with the gospel would be to say something along the lines of, I need you to give me the gift of eternal life. I need you to welcome me into heaven to show me the gospel is trustworthy. And then once you have done those things, I will believe what you have said. But that's not really believing. That's not faith at all, is it? Give me this gift, I will believe it. But that's not trusting at all. We walk by faith, not by sight. We trust Jesus knowing that what he says will come to pass. We believe him, we trust him. To do otherwise is not to trust him. We prove God to be true by acting on what he says. It's kind of like the old hymn says, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord." Have you trusted Jesus like that? Have you believed him? Have you act on, acted on what he said, trusting him? not needing him to prove it to you first, but just stepping out and saying, I believe what you say. I believe what God says about me, my identity. I believe that he says I am sinful and I need a savior. I believe that and I'm gonna act on that by accepting Jesus Christ as my savior. Or are you waiting for God to prove himself? Act first and what God has said will prove itself to be true. Act first, and what God has said will prove itself to be true. Talk to you next week. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful. 